Looking to optimize your performance, grow your mind, and change your system? Well, you've come to the right place. This is the Bold Base Performance Podcast. On this episode of the Bold Base Performance Podcast, we have a revolutionary guest, the anti-iceman, Gary Rhino. Gary is the author of Iced, the Illusionary Treatment Option. Learn the fascinating story, scientific breakdown, alternative, and how to lead others out of the ice age. Gary has spent over 40 years in the sports medicine field, where he has significant experiences training professional athletes and personally teaching these practices to certified athletic trainers, physical therapists, strength conditioning coaches, and physicians from over 100 professional athletic teams and hundreds of other elite organizations, including collegiate and military groups. We have both read a lot of Gary's articles, his book, and listened to multiple of the talks. And as physical therapists, we have both completely adopted his practices of not using ice and promoting more active recovery and educating our patients and clients on this. Uh, And we've anecdotally seen a lot of better results with this as far as swelling and recovery. For more information on Gary, go to GaryRinal.com. That's Gary, R-E-I-N-L.com. Or check him out at the Anti-Iceman on Twitter. For those of you who don't know, Tom and I recorded a podcast about a month back on ice and recovery and found ourselves referencing Gary throughout the entire episode. So we figured why not reach out to the man himself. And luckily he agreed to be on our show and we're extremely thankful that he did. We love Gary's message and the way that he presents it because it makes logical sense and he has great analogies to drive home his points. This is a long episode, but I assure you it is filled with content that is easily digestible and will change the way that you look at recovery tissue preservation, and the use of ice or anti-inflammatory medication. Thank you so much for tuning in, and let's continue to grow together and change the system. Well, let's, let's start right there then. Let's start right there. Um, go ahead and tell us, you know, why you do this, why this is so important to you, um, and we'll, we'll just dive on in. All right, well, the reason I do this, and by the way, I'm, I'm too old to be doing this. I opened the seventh Nautilus gym in the world in 1973. Nautilus was a kind of weightlifting equipment back in the early 70s. Really, it started to, with the sports medicine phenomenon. Uh, the company's name back then was Nautilus Sports Medical Industries. So I've been doing this for a long time, and I don't need to do it anymore, except for I want to do it. And I want to do it for a very specific reason. I don't think any athlete should ever lose, should ever be defeated because they were mismanaged. I think you should lose because your competitor was better than you. And when I came across something that was being done that was wrong, that was causing people to lose, not because they weren't as good as their competitor or better, but because they were mismanaged. And for that reason, I'm not going to stop until enough people like you have taken over and you're pushing it forward. Now, I, I've gotten to over a million people at this point. I've heard my message. Uh, but if you get to another million for me, then I probably won't have to do it anymore. But right now, uh, we've got to solve this problem. Uh, I have a, a great story from an athlete that um, competed in the World Championships and they won. So their team won in the World Championships and this particular individual scored a goal in the uh, event prior to winning the world championships. And then when they won the world championships, of course, was on the field and 
all the glory and represent the United States of America and stood in the podium and got the gold medal and, you know, the picture in the paper and all that stuff. Well, just think if that individual had been mismanaged about three, two and a half weeks sooner. Here's what happened. Actual fact, be happy to connect you off air to the commission who was involved. I will not give his name on the air. But this uh, particular uh, individual is a DPT, ACC, and is the uh, athletic trainer, physical therapist for this United States team. The individual that I'm talking about ruptured a quad. And they measured the blood in the quad with ultrasound and then did an active recovery, the muscle activation technique that I recommend. And they did that for about six and a half hours. Then following that, they measured the blood in the quad with ultrasound. In his words, gone. One word, gone. G-O-N-E, gone. Period. We turned a four to six week injury into running in three days, playing in the world championships in 10. Now, you may be tempted and your audience may be tempted to think, oh, that can't be true. Well, no, actually it is true. And what the trainer said when he called me, he said, Gary, I'm shocked at how fast doing what you said to do, sped up recovery. I said, it didn't speed up recovery. He said, no, Gary, listen to me, seriously. It's a four to six week problem. I know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I know, it's four to six weeks. I said, no, it's four to six weeks if you mismanage it. You now know how long it actually takes. It takes three days to run and play 10 days to play in the world championship. That's how long it actually takes. But here's what would have happened if the individual had been mismanaged. Let's just say you did traditional, and traditional would have been to Rick, rest, ice, compress. Forget the elevation, it doesn't make a difference one way or the other. But rest, ice, and compress. If they had rested, ice, and compressed, I assure you, by the following day, there would have been swelling down past the knee. Clearly, the blood would not have been evacuated from the site. Uh, they would have uh, put, her on, uh, put the individual on crutches. Uh, likely around the third day or so, it would hurt to wiggle the toes. And somewhere around the two and a half, three week mark, you know, somewhere in there, they start easing back off the crutches. Now here's what would have happened in the meantime during that three weeks. The swelling, the congestion in the area would have suffocated and killed otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma. That's for sure, you can count on that. In fact, they tell you that's gonna happen. Well, that's what happens if you mismanage. It's not what happens if you decongest the area. But now let's just look at what happens next. Then because of the lack of movement, you'll have faulty scarring. So as the repair tissue begins to try to reorganize, there's no loading, there's no stress. So the scarring begins, so you get what are called adhesions. Following that and down the path, kind of in line with that, kind of almost simultaneously to that stage, you begin to have significant systemic disuse atrophy. Why? Because you're not using the muscles and they begin to atrophy. The myostatin levels at that point begin to elevate, which the myostatin blocks the muscle regeneration. So what you can fix in three days and plan the world championships in 10, if you mismanage, you can drag it out to four to six weeks. Now, why did that matter for this individual? For the rest of that athlete's life, they get to tell everyone that ever asked them, including their grandchildren, how they scored a goal in the semifinal that took them to the finals. 
and what it was like to win the world championship and how it felt to stand on the stage and get the gold medal and all of the pop and circumstance that follows that. Imagine that athlete would have been deprived of that experience if you mismanaged them. That's yeah. unacceptable to me. So if you're going to lose, I want you to lose because your opponent is better, not because you're mismanaged. And good heavens, I don't ever want you to miss the opportunity to tell a story like I just said for the rest of your life. That's unacceptable to me. And it's because they're mismanaged. Stop it. Now, when everyone stops it, then I'll shush and go away. That's a tough story to beat. Now, when you say those six and a half hours, is that immediately after the injury, as soon as possible? That's a great question. And uh, very often people who aren't familiar with uh, walking it off, because that's all it is. It's the old walking it off idea. By the way, that goes back to the beginning of time. We only stopped the walking it off. We only started doing the RIC or the RICE protocol. I call it RIC because elevation doesn't make a difference. But the rest, I see compression. We only started that back in the late 70s. Prior to that, everyone walked it off for all of time. In fact, when I was coming up in the sports world back in the late 50s, I never heard of anybody sitting still and whining about it with a bag of ice wrapped tightly around it. No one did that. Every coach said, get up, walk around. Don't sit still, they'll tighten up. Everyone knew that. Everyone knew that. And then the rice protocol came in and messed everything up. So what, what happens in the process then is we say, well, well, how soon can you begin to walk it off? Well, I can tell you back when I, when I was playing back in the late 50s, it was right then. They're like, hey, try to move it, try to bend it, move it, wiggle your fingers, wiggle your toes, do something. And we all survived that pretty well, actually. And none of us ever knew of something taking four to six weeks. It took us three days and playing again in 10. <laughs> That's pretty much the experience of all of us back in those days. Now you say, well, well but it, isn't there a chance that it's still bleeding? Well, the fact is, if you read the literature, the bleeding is stopped in three to five and 10 minutes at the most, the bleeding is stopped. So the damaged vessels constrict, convert ingredients in the blood to grow a clot, grow the clot, minimize the size of the clot, it doesn't let it get out of control, it's all regulated by, the, by your immune system, repairs the vessel and dissolves the clot in, uh, in three to 10 days or so, whatever, who cares how long it is, it's a very short period of time before you're back to full function of the vessel. But comma, it's a comma now in that same sentence, comma, the healthy surrounding vessels dilate and increase perfusion. So why do they do that? Why does the textbook say that's what happens? Well, because that's what actually happens. We know the damaged vessels constrict, convert ingredients into blood, grow a clot, repair the vessel, dissolve the clot, normalize flow in three to 10 days or so, and the healthy surrounding vessels dilate and increase perfusion. And that is designed to mobilize the repair and cleanup crew and package the waste for evacuation. That's the way it's supposed to work. So how long would I wait before I would activate? okay, give me 10 minutes. We'll go to the outside of it. I'm starting right away, by the way, on myself. I don't wait at all. As soon as I get hurt, I start moving. I start trying to walk it off. And I'll bet when you bump your knee or you stub your toe, you don't sit there and whine for 10 minutes and then wonder if you should start moving around. You right. know to start moving right now. Right, so it's intuitive. How long do you need? When the bleeding stops, it's okay to begin the uh, evacuation process. And that's, that's usually in less than 10 minutes. Now, 
Should you do anything that causes additional pain or elevate your level of comfort? Of course not. You don't do things that hurt. You, know, you don't break your ankle and do box jumps. That would be dumb. But there are things that you are very well aware of, and all of your listeners who are clinicians are very well, very well aware of, that what they call ankle pumps. You all do ankle pumps all the time. They put it to you in school. Well, what's an ankle pump? That's active recovery. In effect, you're walking it off. Or you have something in your arm or your hand and you squeeze a ball. Why are you doing that? Well, you're doing that to increase circulation in and out. And of course, that's the goal of walking it off. And the reason that you want to do that is in, in the world that you, in the space that you occupy, physical therapist, in my opinion, your job is to preserve and regenerate tissue. In other words, don't let any more get lost post-trauma and regenerate that which has been lost. That's your job. You may say you have other things that you're supposed to do, but when it comes down to reality, there's two things you're supposed to do. Preserve, prevent further loss, and regenerate that which has been lost. So how does that work? Well, it's really very simple how it works. It's not complicated at all. And again, I'm paraphrasing out of your textbooks, but it's really simple what goes on. The congestion in the area will inhibit healing. You've got to decongest the area. So what do the geniuses do? They try to block the congestion, which of course is the exact wrong thing to do. You don't want to block the congestion. A, if you block the congestion, you're going to block in and out. You can't block only the in vessels. Okay? Go back to your anatomy classes, think it through to yourself. Grab your wrist and squeeze and only squeeze the in vessels. You can't. You can't. You can't. It's impossible. So if you try to block it from getting there, you're going to block and trap the waste from getting out. And say, like, well, wait a minute. I don't want to block the waste from getting out. Well, that's what they do when they try to block it, when they do the rice protocol. Rest, ice, and compression literally traps the waste in and around the damaged site and prevents the natural flow of oxygen and supplies. That's not an opinion. If you can't even debate it, it's a fact. It's a mechanical fact. So you look at me and you go, well, why would anyone do that? And I say, I don't know why you would do that. It doesn't make any sense. And, but that's what they do. And I'm talking about the vast majority of people in your business. That's what they do. They do the rice protocol. And right. you say, well, so what, well, what should you do? Well, let's just look at your job again. Your job is to preserve, not let any more get hurt, post-trauma, not lose any more tissue, and then to regenerate that which has been lost. Okay, so let's look at the, 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 the further loss. What would be the further loss? Well, two things come right to the surface atrophy, and suffocation of otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in initial trauma. So how would you deal with suffocation? How would you, how would you prevent that? Well, again, the Rice Protocol people think that what you do is block the congestion from getting there. Well, of course, that traps the waste in and around the damaged site and prevents the natural flow of oxygen supplies. So that's not a good plan. So what would be the right plan? Well, the right plan would be to stop and say, well, how does it work? H how does an area decongest? What is the mechanism that decongests an area? Is it sitting still with a bag of ice wrapped tightly around the area? No, because it has to evacuate by the lymphatic system. There's no other way out. There's no, there's no other path out. The, 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 you could, it doesn't evaporate. The waste has got to go back to the passive lymphatic system. So what would you do to activate a passive lymphatic system? Well, just read the textbook. 
How does it work? When muscles contract and relax around the lymphatic vessels, in effect, it milks the cow backwards. That's how you evacuate waste from a damaged site, which, of course, if you evacuate the waste, there would be no suffocating and killing of otherwise perfect healthy cells from the congestion, because there wouldn't be congestion. And you go, well, it can't be that simple. No, it has to be that simple. It, it had to be. If it were complicated, we'd have killed ourselves by now. It's not complicated. That's how it works. So you go, okay, so that's how I could preserve, but, but what about atrophy? Well, it just so happens that you prevent atrophy very simply and basically by activating the muscles in and around the damaged site. That stress causes the muscles to produce and release the PGC-alpha-1 that blocks the disuse atrophy. I have a paper that fully explains that. It's called Secondary Cellular Death is Actually Negligent Homicide. That's on my website. You guys can link to it, pull it across to yours. I don't charge for it, it's free. And just read the paper. I have all the references there. This isn't, and by the way, if I'm already making you think this can't be true, stop, stop thinking that and just realize that what I'm saying is so simple that a ninth grader could understand it. This is the way it works. So you've got to evacuate the waste through a passive system. You've got to activate the muscles in and around the damaged site to do that. In doing so, you will subsequently downstream, in effect, prevent the disuse atrophy. That increased muscle activation will lower your myostatin levels. And as you likely know, but not everybody knows this, so I'm not pushing you if you don't know it, but, but myostatin inhibits or blocks muscle regeneration. And if you don't remember that, Google the Hercules boy. And you'll see in the internet years ago, 10 years ago or so, uh, there was a young boy who didn't have myostatin and his muscles became very, very large. And there's a whole explanation of it on the internet and in, in many textbooks, but modern textbooks have this, not, not old stuff. Uh, because really it was only in about 98 when they discovered myostatin and they didn't know, even know that it came from, it had to do with muscle regeneration at that time. However, when you lower your myostatin levels, now the muscle can regenerate. So now you're on that second part of your job. Your job is to preserve, don't let any more get lost, and regenerate. Okay, well, if you decongest the area, you won't lose anymore. So now instead of taking four to six weeks, it takes three days running, 10 days playing the world championship. So you're back in, you're back in the right time zone again. And then you say, well, if I prevent the disuse atrophy, I wouldn't have to get that back. At That's right, it wouldn't that be wonderful? If you didn't expect the muscle to look like a wasted uh, a, a bone, skin area when you take the cast off, what about if you activate the muscles whole time and you pretty much prevent it to atrophy? Oh, well, that would be a good idea. Well, then activate the muscle. That's how you do it. So you preserve and you regenerate, and you regenerate by, by decongesting the area and recapitalizing the area around the damaged site. Good news is you don't have to know how to do that. Your immune system is going to repair it. Don't worry about that. Otherwise, healthy people, the tissue will repair once you've decongested the area and you've recapitalized the area around the damaged site. Well, you're never going to guess what decongests the area. Of course, we just went over it. The lymphatic system by the muscle activation. But what about recapitalizing the area around the damaged site? How does that work? That must be a mysterious mystery, right? No. Muscle activation does that. It causes a sprouting angiogenesis, and you increase the capillarity around the area. 
Now, the product that I recommend, the, the, the uh, electronic muscle stimulation device, they have clinical proof. Wake Forest University School of Medicine proving they cause angiogenesis. And by the way, so with ankle pump, so with squeezing a ball, so with standing on a power plate, so with anything that activates the muscles in and around the damaged site. The problem with most techniques is that you get tired and they're uncomfortable. Whereas if you use a powered muscle stimulator, then you can do it point specific and never be uncomfortable and never get tired because it doesn't fatigue the muscle. So you gotta do a couple things. You gotta decongest the area. You gotta recapitalize the area around the damaged site. You wanna prevent disuse atrophy and you wanna promote hypertrophy. Okay, well guess how that works by activating the muscle and then a an additional benefit of doing that is that that same loading or that same muscle activation helps to reorganize the repair tissue, which will further prevent, remember all the activity we've had has helped to prevent it, but will further prevent the faulty uh, uh, adhesion or, or the, you know, the, the scarring, the faulty scarring which leads to adhesion. So you, you skip everything by simply, in effect, walking it off. You don't, you don't lose more, you don't prevent it from growing back, you don't suffocate and kill, you don't have adhesion, you, you don't have any of the problems that are downstream from mismanaging the trauma. And I think that that's something that's, that's an important message and it's so, um, so simple or so basic that it's tough for people to, to grasp, but we, um, something you've said before too is that we think that we're smarter than our body's innate ability to heal itself like prior to the 70s or when when the rice protocol was created like you said you would just walk it off because that's the innate um giving your body the opportunity to heal itself and then i think that we introduce these things um thinking that we're smarter than it or thinking that we're gonna impact it in a different way uh and it's not always not always the case and we don't get the result we want one thing i'm curious about um is to rewind a little bit when when did you personally have the thought of, um, you know, questioning the rice protocol or, or understanding that athletes were being mismanaged or was it um, when you yourself was an athlete, when did that kind of cross your mind and when did you start diving into the research more on that? Well, what happened was uh, because I represent a muscle stimulation device that's used for recovery, and there's also a pain control setting on, but pretty much if you decongest the area and find a neutral position, you hardly ever need pain control. But nevertheless, it's what the product offers. Uh, people would ask trainers, I work with over 100 professional athletic teams, and trainers would say to me, Gary, what's best to use ice before your product, while using your product, or after using your product? And I would say, well, don't use it while you're using me because it's slowing things down and I'm trying to move things along. So don't do that. And if I'm going to be in a contest here, do it last. Let me go first. Cause I don't want to have to deal with what you made cold. So I'm trying to move stuff and get the muscle activated and that's slowing things down. So let do ice last. And one day I just said, you know what? That's not a good answer. I, I need to go get a better answer. And I did a little bit of looking around at that point, and uh, I came to a quick conclusion, and I mean within a week or two, that uh, no one was an expert. 
like if you Googled it, you couldn't find like the guru of ice. And I went, I'm going to become, I'm going to become the best person in the world on this. So I actually set out to become the most knowledgeable person in the world. And that was my actual written goal, by the way, to become the number one person in the world on the use of ice in the recovery process, post-trauma. And I started reading and, you know, you get about 100 articles deep, 200 articles deep, 300 articles deep. You start reading about how the immune system works. You start reading about angiogenesis. You start reading about uh, how tissue preservation and regeneration actually takes place. Uh, you, you get into the textbooks and you look some things up and you, you start interviewing elite people. Like I went to um, virtually every head trainer and director of rehab of all the four major teams, so NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, uh, went everywhere. And then Major League Soccer too, but at that point I wasn't very deep into soccer, so I didn't ask a lot of soccer guys, but I got to a half a dozen or so of them. Went to Apollo Ono's trainer, went to the Olympic Training Center, if you were famous, I went to you. Kelly Scarrett from the CrossFit world, I went to him. I went to everybody. If you were famous, I went to you. And I said, I got a question for you. I want to become the number one person in the world on the topic of using ice post-trauma. Uh, do you use ice? Oh, yeah. Why? And then they would tell me. I'd say, you have any evidence what you just said is true? Oh, no, but do it 25 years, I know it's true. I know, but can you point to an article that I could read so I could put it in my pile so that when I go to tell people, I can give them references to why what you're saying is true. Because in this evidence-based world, you're going to need some proof. You can't just say stuff and say you're the best person in the world. You've got to have proof. Well, after about the two or three hundredth authority who had nothing, nothing to offer me, except their opinion that, oh, I think it's good. And I think, well, okay, but you don't have any proof of that? I mean, within 40 years of widespread use, and there's no evidence this is true? That seems odd to me. So I did a few uh, literature searches myself. And what you quickly find is there were four worldwide searches back in 2012, which is when the book was written. And the worldwide searches included the following. Although popular, there's no evidence whatsoever this is beneficial. And I went, oh, wow, that's pretty interesting. And then you start looking the other way and you say, well, is there any evidence it's bad? Well, there's undeniable proof that it delays healing. There's undeniable proof that it increases swelling. There's undeniable proof it causes additional damage. And they always people say, what do you mean additional damage? Okay, if you hear frostbite, that's additional damage from, from ice. And then why do you never put ice over top of a superficial nerve? because uh, it'll kill the nerve. Okay, and then have you read the articles where they have proven it kills muscle cells? And how do you think those stem cells residing in the area, how do you think they do when the muscle cell, the muscles and the nerves and the skin cells die? You think the stem cells do well? So it, you, you get to a spot where you go, wait, there's undeniable proof it delays healing, increases swelling, and causes additional damage. That's undeniable. And there's no evidence whatsoever that it's useful. Why is everyone doing this? So then you start saying, well, maybe it's the way some people do it and they're doing it wrong. So you start asking those questions, of which I did. By the way, this took me over almost uh, seven years to do. And when I started asking people, well, well, when you use ice, what do you do? Well, some people only use crushed ice. Some people use cold water and compression. Some people only use cold air. Some people only use ice with, uh, uh, with a compression 
running cold water type uh, arrangement. Some people only ice the first day, some people ice the first two weeks, some people only ice after therapy. There were all of these different ideas. And I went, well, there's just gotta be a best way. It, there's just gotta be. Look, I mean, in everything, there's gotta be a best way. So I set out to figure out the best way. And then what I started asking were simple questions. Let's say you had a deep bone bruise, okay? A deep bone bruise, say in your quad, a deep bone bruise. What temperature should you get that area around the deep bone bruise to? And what temperature should you get it to? And how will you know when you're there? And how often should you do it? And how long should you do it for? Do you know that not a single one of those answers is available? None, you can't, none of those. And not only that, there's no way to know when you got to the temperature you said you wanted to get to. And then on top of that, how would you ever get the temperature in that deep bone bruise to the temperature you're trying to do without destroying the superficial tissue? And how would you accommodate for thicker skin? So in other words, when people have higher fat levels, uh, how would you accommodate for the insulating factors of the thicker skin compared to people who are leaner? I mean, these seem like reasonable questions from a reporter like me. It's like, come on, guys, you got a protocol, you're telling everyone to do it, and you can't answer these simple questions? And, and by the way, would you say that if you had a superficial quad bruise, would that be a different temperature than the deep bone bruise? Or are they the same temperature? In other words, you take them both to 72 degrees. Oh, you don't know. Well, how would you know when you got there? And how would you know if you're going too deep with your, with your, with your cold? Oh, you wouldn't know. Okay, so you don't know what temperature you should make it. You have no ability whatsoever to measure what temperature you've taken it to. You don't know how you would get something cold deep without destroying the, the tissue on top. And on passing all of that, you have no idea if you should do it in the first place because you have no evidence to say it's useful. Now, where in your training did they ever give you such a stupid idea as that? Okay, well, they did. It's called the Rice Protocol. And what happened with the Rice Protocol, they taught you it was a good idea. If I had been in class, I'd have raised my hand. I would have said, Professor, I've got a question. Last, uh, you know, last semester, we went over how the lymphatic system works and how tissue preserves and regenerates. And based on everything you said, uh, given the fact that we couldn't possibly know what temperature to take it to or how we got it there or how often we should do it because there's no protocol whatsoever on any of the points I just made, and by the way, another 50 or 75 if you want them, you can read my article weighing the evidence. That's also on my website for free. You can pull that across too. You can pull anything from my website across if you want, by the way. Anything there, you just take and pull across. But in weighing the evidence, I explain all that. I give you about 40 questions in my, in, my, uh, in, my, uh, in my weighing the evidence article where I just say, would you just stop pretending? You're, this is stupid what you're claiming. You can't do what you're saying to do and you don't know if it's a good idea anyway. Now, past that, you'd say, I'd raise my hand and say, Professor, I got a question. I'm a little confused. I really get how the lymphatic system works. It's a passive system. You fully rely upon muscle activation around the vessels to move the waste. I get that. I get that the vessels dilate and increase perfusion. The healthy vessels around the damaged state dilate and increase perfusion. I get that that's the mobilized repair and cleanup crew and package the waste for evacuation. I get all that, but I got a question. If we make it cold and rest and compress it, 
Isn't that going to trap the waste in and around the damaged site and prevent the natural flow of oxygen supplies? Now, anybody in your class has ever asked that question? Nope. Uh, you think they should have? <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Now, now I'm going to ask you something that I normally do at the end, but I want to ask you now because I just think it's very relevant now for your audience so we don't lose them later. Have I told you anything you don't already know? Now, give a truthful answer. Don't, don't, you know, don't try to be nice to me. Have I told you anything you didn't already know? No. Yeah, how about that? Isn't that amazing? By the way, I end every conversation with that question, and I'll do it here, too, at the end. But I didn't want to lose anybody who, who, did, who leaves before I ask that. Because I want people to understand. I didn't tell you anything you don't already know. I may have put it in new order. I may have put a couple of things together you hadn't heard together before, but I didn't tell you anything you don't already know. I have an analogy about the whole thing. If you knew it was gonna snow 24 inches in the next 24 hours, if you knew it, one inch per hour, if every hour on the hour you'd open your front door, with a good stiff broom, you could effortlessly keep your sidewalk clear of one inch of snow, it'd be simple. If however, you waited till morning and opened your door to 24 inches of angry snow, I assure you will not be effortless and you will not clear it with a good stiff room. Now, why does that matter? Let's go back to your original question that you asked me in this, in, this, in this little area here. When should you start? When you first see the snow flurries. Don't wait till there's an inch. And for good heavens, don't wait till tomorrow when there's 20 points of angry snow. Begin evacuating that waste immediately. As soon as the bleeding is stopped, get on it. Whatever you can do, and I'll have some, every once in a while, somebody will say, well, you know, you know that's, a, that's a general comment. No, it's not a general comment, because that's a simple rule. Use your brain, never cause pain. You get that? Use your brain, never cause pain. That's it. That's it. Act, it, it hurts. It hurt. Wiggle your toes. Does that hurt? No. Okay, wiggle your toes then. Can you, can you flex your quads? Yeah. Okay, flex your quads and wiggle your toes. Do whatever you can that doesn't, that doesn't increase your sensitivity of pain. That's all. That's it. If your level of pain goes up, lower what you're doing. If it doesn't go up, keep bringing up your, your level of activation. Now, when you're doing it electronically with a tool like I recommend, the Mark Pro and the H-Wave, uh, when you're doing it electronically, it's, you're controlling with a dial. It's simple. So I don't have to worry about you doing box jumps. I'm not doing any box jumps on a broken ankle. But I can tell you this for sure. Whatever you do on a broken ankle, Whatever techniques you think you got that are going to help that athlete get better faster until you decongest the area and recapitalize the tissue around the damaged site, all, A-L-L, -L, all of your efforts are compromised. Now, do you disagree with that? No, that completely agree. Okay, then why doesn't everyone in your field, why doesn't everyone focus on decongesting the area and recapitalize the area around the damaged site? Focus on tissue preservation. Don't let any more get lost and facilitating the regeneration that which has been destroyed. That's what you do if you want to get back running in three days and playing the world championships in 10. And that's why we want to get that message out there because we don't want people to come to us a day, a week, or even a couple weeks after an injury. We want them to hear this message now so that in the future, if something happens, they know exactly what to do from, like you said, the second it happens or the minute it happens or within those first 10 minutes. 
and not have to see us or call us or run into us, you know, 10 days later and, and they're way behind the eight ball. Have you read my article, Procrastination of Fundamental Flow and Injury Management? Yep, I got it up right now. Okay, well, there, right, if you look at my co-author, you see who he is? That doctor was, at the, time, at, at the time of the article, I believe, at the time, or it had just changed. Now, now I think he's the orthopedic editor, but he was the editor-in-chief of the Physician Sports Medicine Journal. He's the uh, medical director for the American Council on Exercise. He's the senior VP in the American County of Anti-Aging. He was uh, one of the uh, editors or authors, whatever you call it, in the Healthy People 2000 and 2010 committee uh, for the U.S. government. And then he was in Bush's White House. Now, I say that not so that someone goes, wow, that guy sounds like he's got some good credentials. No, I say that because he's my co-author. Read our stuff. And when you're done reading and say to yourself, he didn't tell me anything in this article I don't already know. But I put it in order where you can use it and you can move it forward. And when a doctor says to you, well, you know, uh, I like to ice and compress post-op. Well, then you know what? Pull that article up and show them the references, how that will actually delay healing, cause additional damage, and increase swelling. And if their goal post-op is to delay healing, increase swelling, and cause additional damage, find a different doc to work with. And, and I, I used to be more polite about that, but I've given, I'm too old. I don't have time to be polite about that anymore. If your doc is still telling you to do something that's going to delay healing, increase swelling, and cause additional damage, Find a new doc. And by the way, find a new therapist too. Right, and I, I think that that's something that's very, um, just, in, just in talking with colleagues and things too, I think that there's kind of that disconnect between like, okay, starting to understand it for soft tissue injuries. Um, like even the British Journal of Sports Medicine recently came out with a new protocol like Peace and Love. Um, and the A stands for Avoid Anti-Inflammatories. And then under there, they say uh, how cryoth cryotherapy has not been proven. Um, you know, they don't advise it, but that's for soft tissue injuries. And I think there's still kind of that disconnect. And maybe that's kind of where we can lead into too is with post-op, is there anything different with post-op as far as icing, as far as compression? Um, or is that just along the same vein? Well, let's, uh, let's answer that question with me asking you a question, okay? This is not okay. a trick question. What is the obstacle to healing post-op? What's the obstacle? And I'm going to help you. I've already told you. What's the obstacle? Swelling. Yeah, decongestion the site. And, and what do you need to do with the vessels in the area? You've got to recapitalize the area around the damaged site, right? Absolutely. So until, until you decongest the area and you recapitalize the area around the damaged site, all healing is compromised. Right. So the reward, the reward of icing to minimize pain or to sleep better is not ever going to offset the, the, the negative of the delayed healing. Because we'll get patients Whoa. who say, I can only sleep with ice, but that's, that the risk-reward ratio still isn't there for that. No, of course it isn't there for that, but it's worse than that. It, the ice desensitizes the area. Yes, it does. But it doesn't solve the problem. 
The right. congestion is still there. The lack of circulation, oxygen supplies to the area is still compromised. So you haven't done anything to fix the reason you have, you have pain. But right. let's, let's just go and, and follow something back a little bit. Got to think how dumb this is. And I try to be as kind as I can when I say this. Let's say you had a broken collarbone, okay? Yep. And we put ice on it so you could get some sleep, right? Right. Because it hurts so bad you can't sleep. If you ever had a broken collarbone, you know it's impossible to sleep because, A, you can't lay down. You have to sleep sitting up. And, B, it hurts every time you breathe. So you can't do anything. Okay, so let me get this straight. You're going to recommend that I put ice on it. So I shut off the signal of pain. So that I can fall asleep. And when I fall asleep, I get in a position that I can't feel now because it's numb. And I'm distracting the fracture site for the entire time I'm asleep. Do you recommend that? As a clinician, do you recommend that I get in a position that's distracting the fracture site while it's trying to mend itself in the early days? Because, you know, it's only the first four, three or four days that are so miserable. Absolutely not. That would be a good idea. Well, then why in the world would you make it numb? Because those signals right. of pain are actually to your advantage. They're not to your disadvantage. Decongest the area instead, instead of making it numb. Decongest the area and find a neutral position. You'll be far better off. You will not be distracting the fracture site the whole time you're asleep. I mean, to, think, to me, that's like doing box jumps on a broken ankle. Because oh, I made it numb. Look at, look at me. I'm doing box jumps on a broken ankle. You see, like, that's so stupid. Okay, then why would you do it to your collarbone or anything else? Why would you want to shut off the signals that alert you to harmful movement? Why? Well, get a benefit of shutting off signals that alert your harmful movement. Oh, well, that way you won't feel it. So, but then you're going to tell me to do something like fall asleep and distract the fracture site the whole time I'm sleeping? I actually had a, 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 a commander from the military that I work with, and he had pulled his uh, peck off of his uh, humerus. And then put it back on. He did it on Friday, had the surgery on Monday. And I was meeting with his group uh, at the base, his therapists and athletic trainers at the base uh, that Wednesday. And when I got there, they told me what had happened. And uh, they said, look, he's going to be here. I said, oh, I understand he doesn't come. They said, no, no, he said he'd be here. So he got there you know, a little bit late. And when he walked in, he said, very really sorry, I'm late. I said, hey, I'm grateful you're here. I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, I, most people wouldn't have shown up. He goes, oh, no, no, I wouldn't miss seeing you. And I said, so what's going on? He goes, oh, you know, they told me I need to take it easy and give it a chance to heal. I said, that's inconsistent. And he said, what? I said, that's inconsistent. Taking it easy, that's not how things heal. That's not how it works. I said, I want you to call up your doc. I want you to ask the question. I said, you're a commander, right? I want you to call your doc. You got a phone number, right? Give him a call and say, doc, I got a question for you. You think it'd be a good idea if I allow the waste to accumulate in and around the damaged site to the point that it actually begins to suffocate and kill otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma and, and subsequent surgery. And he's looking at me, and, and then one of his clinicians is like, what? And I said, no, I, I want you to call a doc and ask me if you think that's a good idea. And then I want you to ask me if you think it's a good idea that you allow faulty scarring to accumulate because you're not moving and stressing and loading the tissue to reorganize repair tissue. And then I want you to ask me if you think it's a good idea if you allow the entire area to systemically uh, go into a state of disuse atrophy. And now they're looking at me like, hey, wait a minute, I think he's serious. I'm saying, I want you to call your doc and ask him that. I said, give me the phone, I'll talk to him. I'll ask him for you. 
And then one of the clinicians yelled out, well, yeah, but Gary, you got to be careful. You don't dislodge the anchors. And I went, oh, I said, hey, okay, look, start the conversation off. Say to your doc, say, doc, got a question. If I were to sneeze, would that dislodge this uh, anchor? And then another one of the clinicians from the crowd said, well, no. I said, okay, here's the rules. I will never introduce an intensity of my muscle activation device that even approaches sneezing, okay? So don't tell me you can't do it. I can give a twitch in your fingertips. Give me something to get the activation going. And with that, uh, he called me on Saturday of that week. And he said, well, you know, I started today. I was on for about 10 hours uh, today. And I went, what about yesterday? He said, well, I started today. I said, wait a minute. I saw you on Wednesday. Why did you wait till Saturday? He said, you're crazy. I said, no. I said, I'm really serious. Why did you allow that 24 inches of angry snow to accumulate and compound? Why? What was your intent? Was your goal to introduce significant tissue saturation systemically? Was that your goal? Did you want to begin the foley scarring adhesion process? Did you want to suffocate and kill otherwise perfect ill cells not involved in this or trauma? And did you want to potentially compromise the anchor? Because loading is the only thing that stimulates the area around the anchor to actually grow into and hold the anchor in place. And by the way, look in the literature, you can see everything I just said is true. And he said, ah, okay, you get it? Even someone who believed me, even someone who did it a couple days later, still didn't get it until I told them the second time. And that's the problem. And if you have any, if anybody in your audience has anything wrong with what I just said, call me. If I'm wrong, I'll be happy to retract it. I'm not wrong. I've said it a thousand times in groups of, of hundreds of people at a time uh, uh, in some cases. Nobody ever said to me what I just said isn't true. Of course it's true. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to suffocate and kill otherwise perfect healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma or surgery? Why? Why would you want faulty scarring or adhesion? Why would you want systemic tissue atrophy? Why would you want that? Well, if you don't want that, what makes that not happen? Loading the tissue. Buckwater wrote a paper for the American County of Peak Surgeons. It's referenced in all my papers, referenced in my book heavily. And Buckwater wrote in 1999, one of the most important discoveries of the century was the understanding that loading tissue facilitates the healing of muscle, bone, and ligament tissue, and tendinous tissue fibrous tissue. Now, that's in 1999. Can you imagine that? That that, that needed to be written down and proclaimed in 99 when every coach I ever had back in 1959 already knew that. Everybody knew that. They didn't call it muscles, bones, ligaments, tendons. They didn't know that. They didn't call it the lymphatic system. They didn't call it tissue preservation and regeneration. They just knew if you sat still, it'd tighten up and it'd be harder for it to heal. It would take longer for it to heal. Okay, well, so why are you still doing it now? I mean, Buckwater wrote that paper over 20 years ago. That's in the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. It's, it's one of their papers, one of the major papers. It's one of the most profound statements I've ever read in the orthopedic literature. And yet many docs are completely unaware of it. I've, I, I, I can honestly say without any hesitation that I have told more than 100 orthopedic surgeons about that paper, they never heard of it. I think that that's, I think that's a very powerful thing too. And that's part of, um, you know, what we're trying to do as well is 
I think that people hear these types of things and they're like, oh, that all sounds good, but, but they're used to doing things a certain way. Um, and, and I like to think that as a clinician, you're genuinely trying to use the information you have to give the best care. Um, I, I just think there's a disconnect of things like this, you know, coming out. I know it's not a recent. I mean, you've been preaching this message for a long time, but things like that that are maybe something that, that was different than what they heard in school coming out but it takes them a long time to actually adapt it and to try to start to use it within their own practice. And that's a big part of why we wanted to have you on was to spread this message faster. And um, I guess kind of get the point across that as we learn new things, we need to implement them right away um, in order to do the best for our patients and for our clients. And we can't just say, okay, well, you know, I, I learned this 20 years ago. So this might, must be the way to do it and continue doing that. Because to your point, then we're, we're not preserving the tissue the best way we can. We're not doing our jobs and we're actually hurting our athletes and our, and our clients in the long run. Um, so I think that that's an extremely well, powerful. Go ahead. I have a question for, for everyone in your audience. And I think you may have heard this question because you've read my book, you've done my thing. But for everyone else who hasn't heard it, if I could prove to you, prove, prove, not, not, no debate, prove to you, that the godfather of the ice age, the Harvard trained physician that literally invented the rice protocol, his 1978 sports medicine book written by Dr. Gabe Merkin, Harvard trained doc, board certified in four medical professions. He invented the most recognized protocol in Western medicine. If I could prove to you that he has not only publicly recanted, that he said, I made this up in my 1978 sports medicine book, Research has clearly shown I was wrong. And then gives a specific reference to the fact that it causes additional damage. If I could prove to you that the godfather of the Ice Age is not only publicly recanted, but he wrote the foreword to the anti-Iceman's book, the book that literally took down the most recognized protocol in Western medicine, would you at least listen to me? That'd be a really good start for a what? lot of people. And I'm, I'm really guess, glad. I'm just saying, guess what? To, to your audience, guess what? Google <laughs> my name and you'll see his, you'll see it. Um, he wrote the forward to my book, and I'm the anti ice man. Now, I'm the anti rice man because I think Rick is wrong. I think rest site and, rest site and compression are completely wrong. Everyone knows that rest is wrong. I mean, that's, I can't imagine anybody arguing for rest. That's, you know, right. That, that's, pretty, that's pretty set in stone at this point. And then the ice, well, there's still people a little confused, but when you just ask questions, well, how would that work? Well, you know, how, how, what would you do? How, let's forget the fact that it doesn't work and it causes damage. How would you do it? And they can't even describe how they would do it to where they knew what they were doing compared to a deep bone bruise to a superficial nerve, or, I mean, to a superficial muscle bruise, to a torn ligament, to a torn tendon, to a broken bone, to something in your quad with thick a thick-skinned person who uh, higher body fat to a thin-skinned person. How would you regulate the temperatures? How would you prevent disuse atrophy? How would you how would you do all that? Well, the fact is you can't. So even if you could do it, you can't do it because you couldn't do it. But here we've got proof that the guy who made it up has recanted and wrote the foreword that took down the most recognized protocol in Western medicine. Now, how big, is the, how big is the push? Over a million people have heard my message. Uh, two weeks ago at the NATA, that's the National Athletic Trainers Association, at their annual meeting, 
a, uh, an educator from the University of Delaware. He's the director of education, uh, athletic training education at the University of Delaware. His name is Dr. Thomas Kamensky. He was invited to his lecture. And I sort of heard what was going to happen, but I had never seen it. But I get there, and he's talking about how athletic trainers need to get out of their comfort zone and start thinking about what they're doing. And Dr. Kamensky, in the middle of the presentation, puts up a picture of Dr. Merkin's book where the Rice Protocol was born. And he said, this guy made up the Rice Protocol. He's admitted he's wrong. That research has proven he was wrong. And then he superimposed my book on top and said, and this guy proved it. And Dr. Merkin wrote the foreword to his book. Get out of your comfort zone, stop icing, and start thinking about what you're doing. Now, can you imagine that at a national meeting of the Athletic Trainers Association? Can you imagine such a thing like that? Well, that's what actually happened. And then that doctor has invited me to the University of Delaware to speak to the students this fall. Now, will that change things? Sure, when you get people like him pushing. Now, I'm, we're, we're clearly at a spot where clinicians like you are pushing, an educator like him is pushing, Apollo Ono's trainer is pushing, Kelly Starr is pushing, over 100 professional athletic teams that I work with at some level are pushing. By the way, not every person I work with is 100% off ice. They'll still have reasons they say they want to use it, but I have undoubtedly lowered their use of ice, and in many cases, I've completely eliminated it. Uh, something we didn't even talk about, but just kind of fun to throw at you. Uh, I have players from all 30 Major League Baseball teams. I have confirmed well over 200 Major League pitchers using my technique, not what they used to do with the ice and the sitting still with the bat, you know, the tight wrap. Over 200 Major League pitchers. There's only 390. I have over 200 following my direction. Now, what does that mean? Well, go on my website, go to uh, put in Mark Pro, which is the name of our product, and look up uh, uh, Corey Kluber. So put Mark Pro, Corey Kluber video. The interview I did with him will pop right up. By the way, I didn't ask him to do the interview. He asked his trainers to ask me if I'd be interested in interviewing him. And the answer, of course, was yes. So I went and interviewed him. And when we started, he said, well, what do you want me to say? And I said, I don't want you to say anything. I said, I want you to just tell the truth. There's no script. There's no, it's not an ad. This is, this is an interview. And we listened to the interview. He says, by the way, he's a two-time Cy Young Award winner. At that point, he's only a one-time. He won again that year. And he's one of the most dominant pitchers in Major League Baseball. To a, he broke his arm this year earlier with getting hit by a line drive. But, but Corey says, I don't ice. Makes my arm feel stiff. Never liked using ice. I use the Mark Pro. My arm feels the best it felt my entire career. Anyone who has a chance to do this and doesn't is making a mistake. That's not a paid endorsement. That's the man simply stating facts according to his experience with not using ice and using a muscle activation device. And then I have another one up online with uh, Dan Straley from the Marlins. Dan says, my arm doesn't get sore anymore. It, I mean, can you imagine such comments? And if, if you think what you do is hard to change people, imagine going into the major leagues, into baseball, and convincing players 
that they shouldn't be icing their arm, pitchers, that they shouldn't be icing their arms when they've done it their whole career. Oh, I did it. I went in and got it. I have entire teams off of ice. Entire, I would say at this point, I'm either right at half or just below half of all major league teams do not ice their pitchers at all. The other half are in some stage of getting the ice completely out of the room, or maybe some of the guys are off the room, and some of them aren't, or some of them still ice once in a while, but mostly don't. But before it was everybody basically was icing. I'm pretty much across the board. Icing, sitting still, tightly wrapped around their shoulder. So they were doing what I call the Rick protocol, the rest icing compression. Rick is wrong. What Rick does mechanically, physiologically, traps the waste in and around the damaged site and prevents the natural flow of oxygen supplies. Your goal is to preserve tissue and then not allow any more to get lost post-trauma and to regenerate that which has been lost. Clearly sitting still with a bag of ice wrapped tightly around the area couldn't possibly help in either of those cases. So, so to back up to what you said too, um, why do you think that there's people that are still using ice or why do you think that even people that have heard your message, which is very concise and logical and, and research backed, why do you think that even after hearing that there's people that still use ice or do it, but not as often or, um, people like us, whether they're doctors or therapists or trainers or whatever that are still using it, even after they hear your message, like what is, what is your take on that? Well, I have a real uh, example. I had a trainer, uh, very, very well-known, uh, extraordinarily successful head trainer of a major franchise, sports franchise. And he said to me, he said, Gary, I hear you. And makes sense. But I have worked with some of the greatest athletes in the world for the past 25 years. And I've done the exact opposite of what you're saying you should do. And I can tell you, my players got better. And I have an outstanding career. And I've got several rings to prove that we won the world championships. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, let me explain something to you, though. That doesn't make what you're doing right. Now, he said, well, that's pretty bold. Well, not that I actually said to him. See, it works like this. Let's just say uh, I'm going to pick an easy area of the country that I think nearly everybody would recognize. Uh, if you lived in L.A. and you wanted to go to San Diego and you had to go once a week down and back and you had to do it for 25 years. You could, you could drive from L.A. to Phoenix and back to San Diego. And then you can go home from San Diego, back to Phoenix, back to L.A. And you could, in fact, do that every week for 25 years in a row. You could, and it would work. And you'd get there. And you'd say, don't tell me it doesn't work. I did it for 25 years. I've driven to Phoenix and over to San Diego and Phoenix and back to LA. I, for, I, Gary, I, of course it works. I've done it. And I would say, yes, you did. And yes, it worked. It didn't make it right, though. In fact, you spent about nine hours longer than you needed to. If you'd simply gone from, the, from LA down to 405 to San Diego, you could have done it in about two hours. The way you went took about nine hours. So it took about seven hours each way. You spent about 14 hours a week more than you should have spent. You clearly had enormous excessive wear and tear on the vehicle. And then the related cost of gasoline and repairs and all those things. So yes, what you did worked, but by no stretch of the imagination is it what's best. And when I'm talking about somebody 
losing because they're mismanaged? No way. I am not, I am not driving to Phoenix from LA to San Diego and back. I'm not doing it that way. I'm going to drive right down the 405. And yes, you can get there the wrong way. And the, the, the problem with it is, it's a good thing, by the way. The problem with it is the human body is so well designed that even when it's mismanaged, it ultimately gets better. Now, let's go back to the very beginning story. In all cases, no one would have disagreed that that athlete was going to take four to six weeks to recover from that longitudinal quad tip. Everybody would have agreed because people are willing to drive from LA to Phoenix to San Diego. I'm not. I like that. I'm going to use that analogy a lot now because that's our whole goal is to get you from point A to point B as fast and as safely as we can. And when we, we learn something that gets you there faster and safer and more effective and decreases the negative risk, we're going to start preaching that. So I'm really glad to use that analogy because a lot of people can relate to that on an easier level than maybe thinking about it abstractly. And that's kind of a frustration of ours too is, is just the lack of consistency that you see across providers with different things like even now, if you Google like what to do with a, a tendinopathy or tendinitis, tendinosis, whatever, some some sources will still say, you know, you got to rest it, you got to stay off it. When we know and everything shows that you need to progressively load it, and that that goes along the yeah. same with what you're thinking. And I'm wondering, what what do you think at the base of it? Do you think it's like, and maybe this is more of a human psychology question, but is it pride? Is it this is just what I'm used to, so I'm going to stick with it? What do you think is, is the reason that clinicians have such a hard time adapting when new things that are obviously evidence-based come out, but they're still hesitant? I mean, like that example you gave, like I did this for 25 years. Yeah, but as you learn new things, you should adapt it because otherwise you're not growing. You're just staying stagnant. Well, what I, what I think happens and being involved for as long as I have and knowing as many uh, people in very high positions that I have known. What I think happens is they get very comfortable doing what they're doing. And for example, the head trainer I was just talking about uh, has been told how wonderful he is and has celebrated championships and has had people walk up to him and ask for his autograph or to get a picture with him. And players have thanked him many, many times. Players have thanked him for getting them back in the game not knowing that it shouldn't have taken four to six weeks, that it should have only taken three days running, playing in the World Champion 10, that they didn't know that. So because everybody else was saying, no, four to six weeks, and he got you back in four and a half, so therefore that makes him on the good side of the formula. So you get people who are convinced because of the um, accolades that they, have, uh, that they have accumulated that they must be right and they can't be wrong. I was at a conference yesterday, an athletic trainers meeting down in, uh, in, in Dallas, actually in Arlington, Texas. And I spoke to one of the older guys who was, uh, uh, you know, he's the one with the tie and kind of walking around with all the badges hanging down. And I said, so what do you do? And he told me, and he was in the Hall of Fame and all kinds of stickers on him. And I said, so let me ask you a question. 
I said, where are you on the, on the, on the, the, the ice controversy? He said, what controversy? And I went, okay. <laughs> we probably got a little, little, bit of, little bit of work to do here. That when you use ice, I said, you know, there's a pretty significant conversation going on that, for example, the pitcher shouldn't use it at the third. He said, oh, that's full. And I said, oh, really? I said, so why do you say that? He said, well, everybody knows that after you throw, next morning you use ice, and you, you, know, you got to let it rest so that it can heal. And I said, well, you know what? I don't know that. In fact, I know the opposite. In fact, I have over, I have players from all 30 major league teams, and I think all minor league teams and over 500 collegiate teams who would disagree with you. And I said, I'm not looking for confrontation. I just want to hear why you believe what you believe, because I could be wrong. I'm perfectly willing to accept I might be wrong. Can you tell me why you believe what you believe? He always gave me no, no answer whatsoever. He had no idea why he, why he believed what he believed. He had yep. no, he, he did not use a single word to explain why he believed what he believed. Do you ever get, That's it. do you ever get mad or, or, or just fed up? I mean, I, I like, I can only imagine for how long you've been doing this and how many people that you've had to, um, for lack of a better word, convince. Um, Cause I mean, I, I look at Tom and I, and um, we know that exercise is good, for example, or, um, loading your tissue is a good thing, whether you're a runner or a lifter or whatever. I mean, there's things that are just so common sense that it almost is frustrating to explain it to people that aren't on board. I'm curious if you ever get frustrated or mad or kind of how you approach those types of situations. Um, very few people will say two or three things to me in defense of their position. And what I mean by that is usually after the first thing they say, I so thoroughly take them apart that they either give up or <laughs> agree. That's a good spot um, to be in. Because no, matter, no, matter, no matter what you say, I'm, you're going to lose against me. And I don't know whether you read my, uh, my Weighing the Facts article, uh, but uh, weighing the cold hard facts, weighing the evidence that's on yep. my website. That, okay, well, you saw on that what that was. That was a guy with 17 letters after his name. He's on the uh, uh, faculty of two major universities, and he's a global education director for a very large, very, very large medical company. And he, I guess, thought that because when he spews this nonsense in class and the students don't fight back, that he could just do it in public. Well, he made two mistakes. One, he didn't identify me by name, he called me an anti-ice proponent, which that irritated me. If you're going to attack me, at least have the courage to say my name. And he didn't, but I corrected that as we got along. But I took a part, I wrote a rebuttal to his paper that he published on the NFL trainer's website. And had he not published it in a significant location, I wouldn't have touched him, I would've just let him go. But he put it out in a public space. So I wrote a rebuttal. I welcome anyone out there to read my rebuttal and tell me anything in my rebuttal that is not correct and tell me when you're done that you don't know that what I said was true and what he said was false. So when you, when you have someone at that level, 17 letters after his name, that he posts all 17 letters, by the way, which I think is unnecessary. If you got 17 letters, pick the, you know, pick the nine best and use them. <laughs> you don't need to write 17. 
Uh, and then, uh, you know, being on the faculty of two major universities as a professor uh, and, uh, and being global education director for a giant company, if that person doesn't even stand a slight chance debating me, you can be practically certain that almost nobody walks up and thinks they're going to get away with anything with me. So I don't have people uh, come and try to debate me. They, first of all, if you do, it, 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 I'll try to be nice, but if you're not nice, I'm going to tear you apart. I'm going to tear you apart because you don't know the literature and I do, and you can't relate stories and I'm an expert at it. In other words, you don't have analogies. You don't have a 24-inch of angry snow story. You can't take that complex information and reduce it to something simple. Well, I can. And that's because I'm a reporter. When, when you do what I do and you accumulate facts and you take the time to interview hundreds and hundreds of the most elite trainers, therapists, and doctors in the country in the field, do you know how much that helps when you're trying to debate somebody? When all he has done is likely never debated anybody on the topic because his peers mostly all agree with him. So he's never had to debate it. He's just... Gave off his false information for all these years. It's like, it's like truly, it's like an NFL running back getting down to the eighth grade 100 pound team and running down the field. I mean, it isn't <laughs> a contest. I think you would put up some pretty good stats in that game if, if that happened. Um, but yeah, but, so. But, so. But, you, but you see why it's true. That's why no one argues with me anymore. Well, what would you argue? What would you say? Well, I, I think the rice, I think it's good to trap the waste in and around the damaged site and prevent the natural flow of oxygen supply. That, that's exactly what you want to do. Who would say that? Right. I've asked thousands of people that question. No one's ever said that's a good idea. Well, that's precisely what happens when you we, do the rice protocol. We really and, like and your analogy. Go ahead. Go ahead. When you think about it, who... Who would ever say that delaying healing, increasing swelling, and causing additional damage while shutting off the signals that alert you to harmful movement, and you need movement to solve the problem, but you need the signals to prevent you from doing harmful movement, who would ever suggest that you should do the opposite? Oh, no, you want to increase swelling. You want to cause additional damage. You want to delay healing. You want to shut off those signals so that when you fall asleep, you can distract the fracture site the whole time you're asleep. Who would ever say that? I'll, I'll give you a really, a really hard one that I like. And th this is a crazy one because you've got to follow it in reverse. And it's usually what I do with people who I know aren't going to have time to talk to me very long. But we've kind of had fun, so I'll, I'll, I'll just ask it anyway, even though you already know this. But if I came up to you and I said, you've never heard of the RICE protocol. You've always done everything active recovery. You've always followed the mechanical and physiological rules of the lymphatic system and tissue preservation and regeneration. You've always done that. That's the only thing you know. You've never heard of the RICE protocol, ever. And I walk up to you in your clinic and I say, hey, uh, I got an idea. Um, I don't have any proof it's any good. In fact, there's kind of like undeniable proof that it's going to delay healing, increase swelling, cause additional damage, and shut off the signals that alert you to harmful movement. You need the movement to solve the problem. You need the signals to make harmful movement. 
What it's going to actually technically do is trap the waste in and around the damaged site and prevent the natural flow of oxygen and supplies. Want to try it? <laughs> I think we'd pass. That'd be a hard pass. Doesn't, doesn't that sound stupid? Uh, very much well, so. That's, what, that's, that's what's going on with anyone who doesn't agree with us right now. But you see, when you reverse it and pretend it doesn't exist, it sounds so dumb, so ridiculous, that no one would even consider it. And heavens, could you imagine if you said, well, uh, no, I only do evidence-based medicine, and then you say you do the right protocol? Do you know how many people have told me, well, uh, do you have any evidence that what you're saying is true? I'm like, uh, okay, wait. You want me to demonstrate to you that the lymphatic system is passive? Well, no, I'm not saying that. Okay, what, what parts you want me to give you evidence of? <laughs> you think the immune system sends the wrong amount of fluid to the damaged site? You, you think that. You actually believe that the immune system, which is responsible for our very survival, you think that your innate intelligence sends the wrong amount of fluid to a damaged site every time on every person under all conditions. Do you actually believe that's even possible? Of course it doesn't happen. It doesn't sound, it's not an arbitrary or chaotic event. It's a precision process. Your immune system knows exactly how much fluid to send. It knows exactly how many repair and cleanup crew members to send. It knows exactly how much waste needs to be packaged and removed by the lymphatics. All of that is, if, look, think of it this way. Your immune system knows where to put fingernails and eyelashes. And you're going to worry about whether it sends the right amount of fluid to a damaged site? See, there isn't too much inflammation. There's too little evacuation. And if you get nothing else out of what I've said to you today, remember that. There's not too much inflammation. There's too little evacuation. You decongest the area, that will simultaneously recapitalize the area around the damaged site. Because the same mechanism that moves the waste through the lymphatic system causes the recapitulation of the area around the damaged site. It causes the angiogenesis. Which, that same stress, begins to reorganize repaired tissue to help you prevent or maybe eliminate the opportunity for adhesion. Which, that same stress, prevents tissue atrophy. Which, that same stress, lowers your myostatin levels so the tissue can regenerate. Isn't that unbelievable that it's all continued upon loading or stress? We're designed to self-heal, not self-destruct. If we're self-destructing, figure out why and make a change. It's that simple. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful thing that we're, we're designed that way. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we've gone a lot down the path of the decongestion. Um, if you could just touch briefly too on inflammation and um, I know just from listening to you, but, but talking about how that's a necessary part of healing, because I think that people are like, oh, I need to take ibuprofen or I need to ice or I need to decrease inflammation. Um, and they don't necessarily understand the difference of inflammation versus swelling, um, what's necessary, what's not. Well, to begin with, let's grab swelling. Swelling is not a good or a bad thing. It is merely the accumulation of waste at the end of the inflammatory cycle you have not yet evacuated. That's all it is. Don't make it a good thing. Don't make it a bad thing. Just identify what it is. It is merely the accumulation of waste 
at the end of the inflammatory cycle that you have not yet evacuated. The only question that makes any sense whatsoever, and because I've run it through more than anyone I know, I'm going to say the only question that makes any sense is how does that waste evacuate? Well, evacuates by the passive lymphatic system. How does that work? By activating the muscles in and around the damaged site and milking the cow backwards. That's how it works. So getting it out, not blocking it from getting there, getting it out. There's not too much coming in. There's too little going out. So all you got to do is focus on how to get it out. And you don't get it out by trapping the waste in and around the damaged site with ice compression and rest. That's not how you get it out. Now, with that said, what about inflammation? I have a paper called Anti-Inflammatory. It's on my website, it's free. In the Anti-Inflammatory paper, my lead co-author is the Editor-in-Chief of the Physician Sports Medicine Journal, same doc. We lay out all of the facts regarding the inflammatory spot. But what's most important to understand, Google healing. You'll see there are three steps to healing. Inflammation, repair, and remodel. The inflammatory response is the first step in the three-step healing process. It's not my opinion. It's in every clinical textbook. It, it, it's like, why in the world would you think you're supposed to block it? It's phase one of three phases of healing. It's how we heal. Why would you want to block that? So taking an anti-inflammatory, by the way, it says right in the drugs, the warning label says, if you take this drug, it will inhibit healing. <laughs> it's like, are you guys kidding me? Who does that? <laughs> well, they do that because they're trying to prevent the swelling. Don't prevent the swelling. There's not too much fluid going in. There's too little going out. So instead of trying to prevent it from getting there, understand how it leaves. And when it leaves, it leaves via the passive lymphatic system. So you move the waste back out through your passive lymphatic system. It won't be swollen. You don't need an anti-inflammatory. Ice doesn't block swelling anyway, by the way, except while the tissue's cold. When the tissue rewarms, the inflammatory response resumes and the fluid comes. So, and remember, it says right in your textbook, the damaged vessels constrict, comma, and the healthy vessels dilate and increase perfusion. In other words, the fluid is sent there deliberately by your innate intelligence. Don't try to drop it. But, but that doesn't mean you let it sit there. You need to walk it off. And you need to walk it off because walking it off is the, you know, that's the metaphoric uh, example of how it moves. It moves through the lymphatic system because when you walk it off, you activate the muscles in and around the damaged site. That's how the waste is moved through the passive lymphatic system. So anybody who touches inflammation on a musculoskeletal injury on an otherwise healthy person, um, you hear right now that docs that are in trouble, the pain docs are in trouble uh, because they've killed so many people with the uh, prescription drugs, the Oxycontins and those things. You hear that in the news, right? Yeah. Okay, well, I, I believe soon you're going to hear the same kind of litigation because there's, there's docs going to jail for that right now, by the way. And there's pharmacists going to jail for that. The, the, the indictments are out. It's happening. Uh, they've killed hundreds of thousands of people by prescribing those pain meds, over-prescribing those pain meds. I honestly believe that soon, soon, let's just say less than, less than five years, probably more than 12 months, uh, you're going to see litigation where people are going to start suing doctors 
who prescribe anti-inflammatories to prevent inflammation, which is phase one of the three-phase healing process. By the way, the docs will have no defense in court whatsoever. Can you imagine trying to defend when when the when the when the when the, uh, when the client when the when the suer I don't know what they're called, but whatever the person's called is suing. Uh, when that person says, when their when their defense attorney, when their attorney says to the drug to the doctor, doctor, why would you want to block inflammation? Isn't that phase one or three phases of healing? And then the expert witness was just up just before that and said, well, inflammation is phase one or three phases of healing. Without that, you can't get to step two and three very effectively. Now, how is the doctor going to defend himself? for writing those orders. And why will that happen? Why will that litigation happen? Uh, look at the litigation that's going on in the marketplace right now and tell me you don't think that's going to come. Let's just say you were an athlete and the doctor prescribed anti-inflammatory and you didn't heal well and you missed the opportunity to make it into the pros and you lost the $500,000 signing bonus, or in many cases nowadays, a $5 million signing bonus because the doc prescribed anti-inflammatories that inhibited your healing that your lawyer is claiming caused you to not make the pros. You don't think that's lawsuits coming? Uh, I do. I do. I think it's coming. Yeah, I, that, that totally makes sense. Um, is there, so is there any situation where you would ever use ice or anti-inflammatories? Regarding musculoskeletal injuries, me personally, no. However, however, if there's someone who immune system is not up to par, you know, I, there are people who have problems. In otherwise healthy people, mostly always no. I wouldn't use an anti-inflammatory, but I'm not a doc. I'm not writing prescriptions, but, but I personally wouldn't. However, let's say that uh, there, there's something wrong and you have a, an immune system that just goes berserk when you bump your knee. Uh, sort of like, I don't even know what it'd be called, but hemophiliacs don't stop bleeding very well. Maybe there's that kind of a problem in a musculoskeletal person. I don't know if there's someone that would that happen to or not? But if there is, then no, they should do whatever the doctor says to do. But when it comes to otherwise healthy athletes, when you're talking musculoskeletal injuries, the inflammatory response, inflammation is phase one or three phases of healing. As Ledbetter said, I think his name is Ledbetter, uh, said, and I quote it in all my papers, Ledbetter said there can be inflammation without healing, but never healing without inflammation. So you need the inflammatory response. I would not mess with it in otherwise healthy people. Regarding ice, I do have a couple of examples in my book where I say that you should ice. For example, uh, you have a 12-year-old, dislocates his ankle in a soccer game, and no one on the field knows how to relocate it. And you're 45 minutes in the hospital, and all you have is a bag of ice. You bet I'm putting that ice on while riding to the hospital. That kid's going to be in a lot of pain, and it will lower the sensation of pain. The ice will. And yes, it will increase you know, the inflammation in the area, the swelling in the area. It will, but don't worry about it because at that point, the swelling has not become too great yet. In other words, you only have an inch of snow at that point. So rather than let the waste accumulate on your way to the hospital, stop it. Because I didn't say icing doesn't stop swelling temporarily. It does temporarily. 
when the tissue reworms the inflammatory response resume, then the flu will come. But on the way to the hospital, you will give that young man, that young woman, uh, an opportunity to have less pain because the ice will desensitize the sensation of pain. So it will work. You will minimize the swelling because it basically slows everything down. And when you get to the hospital, it's much easier to relocate an ankle on A, a patient who's not freaking out and screaming, B, who isn't greatly swollen. It's much easier to reduce it. And C, the ice gave you some anesthesia, so it'll be even less painful. So there's a great reason to use ice. Now try to fit that into your process and use it often, because that's the only good example I can give. I had one guy call me who, who trains boxers, and he said, well, what about if a guy's popped above the eye in the first round, and you know it's a 10-round fight or whatever, 12-round fight, whatever fights are, I don't even know. Uh, but whatever a fight is, and uh, would you recommend using ice between rounds to keep the swelling down? I said, of course. Uh, yeah, but that's not the same. You're doing it to, you're making it cold to keep the swelling down. You're not trying to heal. You're not trying to fix the problem. You're trying to make it so his eye doesn't shut from the swelling. Okay, so I get it. It'll work for that. But remember, you don't want to stop the fluid from getting there. You want to facilitate the movement from the fluid from the site. There's not too much coming in. There's too little going out. So would I use it for that purpose if I was working with boxers? Yeah, it would work. Would I do that if I had a 12-year-old and I had a bag of ice and nothing else? Yeah, I would do that. Would I put it on somebody who broke their collarbone so they can get some sleep, so they can be asleep and be comfortable and just and, – and, uh, um, uh, separate the fracture site while they're sleeping? No, I wouldn't recommend that. Would I put it on somebody to increase the swelling and delay healing and cause additional damage? No, I don't recommend that. And when you read the articles in the literature that I've put up, and I show you that even post-op, it stays cold. The vessels stay cold for, I believe it's up to an hour, but the article that I gave you in my references, uh, I believe it's an hour. But for an hour, it continues to, to cause damage and havoc in the area. It's like, why would you do that? Well, for pain relief. Well, yeah, but look at the consequence. By the way, there's electronic pain relief. You can use our prescription product for pain relief. It will give you very significant pain relief. We're actually cleared for dental anesthesia. So I can give you electronic pain relief. And I have none of the ice-related uh, or, or down or you know, uh, disadvantages. Uh, there are people who use dry needling for pain control, and I've heard very good reports. I haven't personally done it, but I've heard very good reports about it. Uh, I know people who are using laser for pain control. Well, dry needling, laser, electronic uh, 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 anesthesia, those things don't have the downstream disadvantages of ice. So why would you use ice for pain control or drugs for pain control when you use things like dry needling, electronic stimulation, electronic anesthesia, and, and, uh, um, and uh, what's the light called? My brain just made me forget what the light's called. Laser. The, la the laser. So th there are people who are getting successful with that stuff for pain control, and then you don't have the downstream problems. Why do you want to have downstream problems? The, the answer, by the way, just in case anyone thinks I don't know the answer, is because ice is readily available and cheap. <sighs> okay, I get it. It's still wrong, but I get it. it. Like I said, if I had a 12-year-old and I only had a bag of ice and we're 45 minutes away and his ankle's dislocated, 
and nobody knows how to fix it, I'm going to put ice on while I'm driving to the hospital. See, I'm not 100% anti-ice. Exactly. You are just preaching the message that is the most true that we know right now, or the least wrong, however you want to view it. And that's what we like is it's not that you just picked one thing. You actually picked the opposite. You want to know the most about ice earlier in career, and then you realize the other way is a better avenue for people. So you're trying to give the message that is either the most right or the least wrong, and that's what is most helpful. And if that message gets tweaked at all, you know, in a certain direction down the future, you will adapt based on the research and the evidence. And that's what we really appreciate in this conversation is you're trying to find, like I said, the most truth or the least wrong with what you're telling people. I'm with you and I, I appreciate that understanding because that, but my only goal, I only have, the one thing I care about is that the woman we talked about in the beginning, the athlete we talked about in the beginning, that she can tell her grandchildren about how she scored a goal and stood on the podium at the World Championships with a gold medal. That's all I care about. Nobody okay. should have the right to take that away from anybody because they mismanaged them. That's it. Now, is there a better way to manage? You know what? Let's keep figuring it out. But I can tell you, that's the wrong way. Rick is wrong. Rest ice compression is wrong. That's wrong, I'm sure. Now, what's best? Well, I'm very confident that we're going to realize and figure things out regarding diet, that there are some foods and, and nutrients that facilitate healing better than others. I, I don't know what they are. I mean, I've heard some, some people on, uh, like a lot of pro teams now have nutritionists on staff. And they highly recommend uh, special diets to players when they're hurt. You know what? I believe that. I don't know much about it, but I certainly wouldn't say it's wrong. I think that the right food probably does help heal. And I think getting the right amount of sleep and good sleep probably helps too. Not probably. I'm very confident. I just don't know enough about it to say I'm positive. But it is likely that, that, that eating right getting the right hydration and getting the right sleep has a giant impact on musculoskeletal healing. Okay, I agree. But here's what I do know. You can drink anything you want to drink. You can eat anything you want to eat. You can wear anything you want to wear until you decongest the area and recapitalize the tissue around the damaged site, healing's compromised. So I don't care what else you do. I don't care if you mobilize, adjust, traction, use the, the, the hawk grips, use laser, use dry needles. I don't care what you do. Until you decongest the area in and around the damaged site and recapitalize that tissue, until you do that, everything's compromised. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and, and that's a huge thing too, and that's something that we always preach is it's, it just comes down to the basics. It's diet and hydration it's what you put in your body it's how you fuel your body it's sleep which is obviously extremely important we don't have to go down that road it's exercise it's moving your body it's all these basic concepts that we've been doing as humans have been evolving for years and years and it's typically not the things that we're just introducing you know 45 50 years ago whatever um that are going to give you the best results so i think that that's extremely powerful um i think that your message is extremely meaningful and we're going to try to continue to spread it to as many people as we can um you know like you were touching on earlier i think within healthcare and really within any profession um comfort is a really scary thing i think comfort leads to complacency 
And it's hard to um, continually progress and grow without taking messages like yours and being like, oh yeah, that makes logical sense and implementing that immediately. Um, because I think if we don't, we're doing the general population a huge disservice. Um, so I really, really appreciate you continuing to push this along. Um, we will do the same. Is there anything you'd like to close on for the listeners? Um, any kind of last remarks or analogies for them? My last remark to you is the one I said I would ask at the end. Did I tell you anything you don't already know today? I'll say no, but I'll say that it was extremely informative and you put it together in a way that I've never, ever thought of on my own before. But remember the first part of your answer, no. I didn't tell you anything you don't already know. And I appreciate the fact that you comment that I put it together, because that's what I do, I'm a writer. So I'm a reporter, so I put stuff together. But I didn't tell you one thing that you didn't already know, nor did I tell you anything that I've made up or invented. I told you what you already knew, what you already learned, what you already took tests on and you already passed. And now you've got it in a little different order, arranged a little different way. And when I walk away and people say, well, what do you think he thinks? My goal is that you say, he, he doesn't think anything. He's a reporter. I don't think anything. I'm not a commission. What, what, who, who, what right do I have to think something? Well, based on what? I don't think I report. I didn't tell you one thing you don't already know. So when I close, I always close with the exact same thing. And that's the meltdown continues. Thanks a bunch, Gary. We really appreciate it. My pleasure.